Greetings, film fans, and welcome to another episode of the Following Feature Podcast. I'm your host, Arthur Wilde, and I'm here every week to give you a rundown of the latest film news, uh, some gossip, things about castings, release dates, all that kind of jazz. Plus, we break down at least three films a week, two of which are generally popular releases, maybe not new releases, but big films that are available to watch. The third is always going to be some kind of small indie film, some kind of hidden gem that I think you should really kind of seek out and watch. Especially if all of the big blockbuster releases that are being constantly shoved down your face aren't quite your cup of tea. I have many cups of tea. Come and have a taste. I really don't know what that meant. That, that came out of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense. You don't have to taste my tea. Although I do make a cracking cup of tea. Where is this going? That's the first tangent of the week. Let's just move on and get straight into the film news. And I think the biggest bit of news that everyone's kind of talking about this week is the um, uh, upcoming Netflix production, The Grey Man. Now, why is this important? Well, it's the Russo brothers. Uh, if you don't know, they're the ones uh, responsible for some of the best uh, um, Marvel Cinematic Universe films, including Avengers Endgame. And they're actually hooking up with one of their former... Avengers in Chris Evans, who's going to be uh, playing a part in this film, although not necessarily the lead, because the aforementioned Grey Man is going to be played by Ryan Gosling. Now, this sounds like a great bit of casting. Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans playing, um, well, Ryan Gosling is basically his character. If you don't know, the Grey Man is basically a, a successful series of novels um, based in kind of espionage spy type thrillers. And, um, the Grey Man is uh, a, a CIA operative that's somehow uh, betrayed and on the run and constantly being hunted down by other operatives uh, whilst on missions himself and trying to solve... I haven't read the books yet, so I don't really know. And um, I'm kind of conflicted now as to whether or not I want to give the books a try before the film actually comes out because one thing I've, I've, I've had to be honest with myself about is the fact that I am a film fan first and I'm a book fan second. So when it comes down to a film based on a book, I know a lot of people say like, oh, you've got to read the book first. If you really want to appreciate this, you've got to read the book first. You want to kind of get into the creator's vision and you've got to read the book first. No, I'm pretty much guaranteed to always see the film um, and I don't want the film to be ruined. So I will always see the film of the book first and depending on the criticism I hear, I will then maybe give the book a try. So um, a lot of purists won't see it that way. They, they say that you've got to read the book first, but... For me, all that's really going to do is ruin a film that I'm going to see. Um, I don't like going into a film already understanding the plot, the twists, the conclusion, you know, before it actually happens. Why ruin a film? And if it turns out that the um, the book is better than the film, well, then I can go back and discover that afterwards. I can go and, you know, because I, I, films I'll watch time and time again. Um, so it's not as if I need to not understand the story each time. You know, I can basically enjoy it for what it is if it's a good piece of art. Um, but going from book to film, I don't know. It, it adds that layer of disappointment as well if the film is good, but it doesn't quite do everything that the book did. Um, I think one of the best examples of that is um, The Shining. The Shining is a fantastic book by Stephen King. It's also a fantastic film by Stanley Kubrick, but the two are not the same. And Stephen King hated the film The Shining, whereas Kubrick was actually a genius. And I don't use that term lightly. He really was uh, ridiculously intelligent and had an IQ that defied logic in some way. I don't know. What the fuck am I talking about? The point is, books, films, you know, they're not... Just because a film adaptation isn't always... Um, exactly specifically to what the book was it doesn't keep to the the original context or, or text sorry it doesn't necessarily mean that the film's going to be bad sometimes you know a filmmaker needs to create their own vision rather than just film the writer's vision do you know what i mean it's, it's a bit weird unless the writer's actually making the film there's no way the film can be a truthful adaptation so you've got to allow directors to have a bit of kind of creative license with them Anyway, back to this one, The the Grey Man. Uh, the books are very successful. So they're making a film. Um, and they're hoping it does become a franchise of the same kind of level of, as like James Bond. 
So the Russo brothers have got together. They're working with their uh, script partners, Marcus and McFeely, who uh, they worked with on a lot of the um, Avengers films. And um, uh, the Russo's Agbo production company, uh, which is supposed to be um, agnostic in terms to, terms of the uh, uh, production studios that it's associated with or affiliated with. They basically do their own productions and whoever wants to distribute the films can, can do so. But this is actually their second franchise that they're starting with Netflix um, after they did Extraction and that's getting a sequel. Um, if you want to know what I thought of Extraction, you need to skip back a couple of episodes and just my review of that. Um, yeah, so that's looking like it's going to get a sequel. So this is, if this turns out to be a decent um, film, which it should do because they're spending $200 million on it. And when you're using that kind of budget um, with uh, a couple of filmmakers that have been known to put together extremely huge and complex projects and execute them quite well, in my opinion... For them to be working with good source material, great actors, um, and the kind of free reign that Netflix gives its creators to really do what they feel is best without too much control or interference from the studio. I think Netflix have been quite good at that. Sometimes to their detriment, sometimes they let people do what they want and it doesn't turn out to be exactly great. Um, I was reminded of a film, uh, I think this is called This Is How It Ends. And yeah, um, oh, fucking terrible. Beautifully filmed, great cinematography, but sometimes that's not enough. And, and, and well, I say sometimes, that's never enough. Uh, a good film can't just look good. It has to actually have some kind of substance to it as well. And so I'm, I'm hopeful for The Grey Man. I think there's a lot of elements there that are in place that make it a potentially good project and a potentially good film. And therefore, potentially good franchise. We will see. Um, it hasn't even gone into pre-production yet, so we're a long way off. Um, but as per usual, as soon as I have some more news, I'll let you know. Now, one film that is currently in production, and the first film to go back into production in the UK, has been Jurassic World Dominion. Um, and we know it's back in production. It's been going for at least two weeks. Um, and one of the things that, one of the bits of evidence that we've seen of the production is Bryce Dallas Howard, who's been showing off what uh, her co-star Chris Pratt has referred to as crazy sick bruises. Um, Bryce is actually doing a lot of her own stunts in this film, and it shows. Um, she's got bruises up and down her arms and legs uh, from being thrown about in who knows what's happening, um, whether fighting off dinosaurs or humans, probably more likely humans. I don't think she'd just have bruises if she was fighting dinosaurs. Two weeks in, and everything's going okay, which is very reassuring as far as the as, as i keep talking about the amount of productions that are looking to um get going in the uk um i know the batman are still waiting in the wings as are fantastic beasts three and uh spider-man three and a bunch of others um jurassic world dominion is filming at pinewood at the moment and it looks like everything's going okay from what i've heard from some people that are working um some of my um supporting artist friends it seems that the social distancing is being maintained to a certain level. Um, the ability to keep everything clean and you know virus-free is being managed to a, a very decent level. Yeah, I've even I actually had um, an agent contact me about working on uh, a film. Um, uh, I'm not. I don't know if I will be working on it yet, so I'm I'm not going to talk about it. But it is a big film, um, a big female-led. Uh, action movie um, and it was it was uh, one day fitting and another day filming but there was also additional days for testing and now I really want to get a COVID test that'd be really nice to know that I am fit and healthy to to go and work on a production however I have had some good news I've actually got a job I've got some work coming in it's temp work and it's office work, so it's not exactly the dream coming true, people. And I'm I'm sorry to let you down. I know you want to see me do well and um, enjoy following my passion. But these are desperate times and there are bills that need paying. Plus, there are also football boots that need buying. Uh, not for me, obviously. Um, but my nephew, um, he's uh, got a potential trial at a football club, professional football club coming up. And once that all gets restarted after lockdown, I want to make sure that he's wearing 
boots that fit him, you know? Um, I think that's very important. Um, so there, there's there's my priorities. Um, so unfortunately, I'm, I'm having to turn down work at the moment, but it's good to know that productions are up and running. And it's good to know that everything's going according to plan. Um, one thing that isn't going according to plan, because it, it never seems to work out for this film, is Tenet. Yep, still saying it right. Um, I don't know if what I've the latest update that you've got from me is, but just to be clear, the film is now being released on August 12th. I know it was supposed to come out earlier this year, it's supposed to come out in the summer, and then there were June, July dates. Now August 12th is the actual release date. Watch this space. I mean, if you've been following the podcast, you know that this has been a bit of a yo-yo release, and we're still not entirely sure if it's going to be released as planned. And uh, now the latest thing is that it might not be released in China at all. It's a weird situation, but China, in order to deal with the um, uh, coronavirus, which, as I'm sure you're aware, it originated in China um, and has uh, proceeded to uh, spike a couple of times. So they're being very, very strict in how they're going about their, their easing of the lockdown. And uh, one of the things is they don't want people, uh, large gatherings of people, to be in a confined space for more than two hours. Which means, if you're releasing a film in China, make it two hours or less. Um, this is quite a struggle for a lot of studios these days, as they're looking to really make big epic films. And Christopher Nolan is one of those. Tenet is going to be a huge film. It's uh, got a running time of 150 minutes, which is about an hour and a half, two and a half hours. Which, you know, um, considering we've had things like Endgame, which was three hours. Um, we've had The Irishman, which is three and a half hours. Uh, yeah, it's it's not unusual for films to be that long these days. But unfortunately, in China, they're, they're putting these restrictions out, which are completely understandable. It's not aimed at cutting off the um, Western uh, filmmaking or film productions. It's just one of those things. It's, these are weird times, people. These are strange days. And we've just got to adapt, really. For the, it's, it's only a temporary thing. This time next year, I imagine we'd have a, a vaccine which is being distributed. I can't see a reason why that would take any longer than that. But for the time being, we, we have to try to mitigate the danger that we're putting ourselves into. And um, considering the, uh, you know, the, uh, the way the outbreak break hit China... Uh, they were one of the first people, so we've been able to learn from their lessons, or we should have. Let's not get started on that. Um, so yeah, unfortunately Tenet might not actually get a cinematic release in China, which could be huge because, I mean, that makes up about 18% of their uh, global takings sometimes on, on big releases. So they're hoping they can get that sorted out somehow. Um, unfortunately, it might mean some kind of intermission um, I'm not really sure how they can work around that. It's a brand new situation, but like most in in this current climate, they're having to adapt to brand new problems um, and come up with brand new solutions. Um, sorry, I just suddenly got Dave Chappelle in my head. Modern problems require modern solutions. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Um, we talked last week about uh, Charlie Theron's The Old Guard, um, which is now on track to reach 72 million homes in its first four weeks. That puts uh, Gina Prince Blythewood, or Bythewood, my apologies, um, on track to become the first female black director to be featured in Netflix's top 10 most popular films ever. Now, it's a bit of an ambiguous list. Um, the way it's kind of put together... You know, it doesn't necessarily talk about the success of the movie rather than how many people have put it on. Um, and that's not necessarily to say that these people have watched the whole thing. Um, I know for a fact that sometimes I'll go through Netflix and just pick random films, check out the first four or five minutes and just get an idea of whether or not it's something I want to really try. Um, so, yeah. To say it's it could be watched within... 72 million times within four weeks I mean that's a weird thing to say one week into its release um, to project those kind of numbers it, basically what a lot of people are saying that this is uh, an ambiguous list and it's attempting to fuel the debate between cinemas being relevant and streaming being an inevitable, inevitable successor now whilst I see streaming as being 
a pivotal role in the future of uh, filmmaking and uh, film release. Um, I don't think cinema's going away um, because it's not just about being able to watch films. There's an experience that comes with going to the cinema that cannot really be matched at home. I mean, yeah, like sort of I've got myself kitted out with a massive TV and a surround sound system and I can microwave some popcorn and, you know, pour an unnecessary amount of fizzy drink into um, an oversized cup. That's stuff that I can recreate at home. But there's a certain atmosphere um, and a certain romanticism that's associated with the cinema and going to the movies. I don't think it's going to die. I think there's just too many people that love that whole experience that will keep going. I mean, this is why there are so many independent movie um, or cinema chains in the, in the country. Um, there's this desire not only just to see the new releases, but to see great films on the big screen uh, with an audience. Um, sometimes that that collective experience is part of the the joy of of seeing these these big films. So I do think Christopher Nolan's going to try to get his film out of the cinema, um, and I don't think that The Old Guard is necessarily um, a great success based on those statistics. I think it's kind of misleading um, and disingenuous, um, and whilst you know I do want these filmmakers to be celebrated for the hard work they do, we've got to give them honest recognition. We can't just pander to them. You know, um, anyway, um, another film that I've heard about this week, um, there's been some rumours going around about what's happening next with the whole Star Wars franchise. And uh, one thing I wasn't quite aware of is that um, uh, Alden Ehrenreich, if that's how it's pronounced, um, who played Han Solo in, in, in Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, has been spoken to about the uh, potential for there being a sequel Um because there was rumour going around that one was actually in development. And if you saw the first film, which I re-watched recently, and it wasn't as bad as I remember. It's not a bad film at all. Um, it didn't quite have the disastrous effect of the um, the reshoots with a different director as uh, Justice League did. But it still wasn't um, a cohesive vision, you know. I mean, you had the um, uh, Lord and Miller uh, who were making the film and putting their spin on it. They were sacked, and reshoots were were um, done by Ron Howard. Now, Ron Howard's a great filmmaker, one that I really, really love. Um, but he comes from a completely different place and has a completely different style and and ethic um, than Laura Miller do. So, to get him to finish the film didn't really kind of work. It meant there wasn't a, a real, there wasn't a good balance to the tone of the film. Um, and I think that's one of the people that one of the things that kind of upset people is that, you know, it, it, it just it didn't really kind of come together. Um, the two visions didn't quite meld as, as well as people hoped they would or as the, the studio probably hoped they would. Probably Ron Howard hoped they would. Um, yeah, so it wasn't a great film. And the thing is, like, they sacked Lord and Miller because they didn't have faith in their ability to put something that would actually stand out as a great film and... Uh, bring in the audiences. And what do they do next? Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which they won an Oscar for. So, thing is, you've got to take a risk sometimes. And I felt, well, I feel that what Lucasfilm have done, or what Kathleen Kennedy and her crew have done, is that they've they've stepped in too much, and they've tried to control too much, which is not really how art works. Um... And the thing is, they, they let Ryan Johnson make the film that he wanted to make with The Last Jedi. And I love that film. I thought it was brave. I thought it was ambitious. And I thought it came together really nicely. I thought it really kind of expanded um, and gave new life to the franchise. Completely undermined and underdone by uh, Rise of Skywalker, which just shot itself in the foot. And it's just, you know... So, the fact that they... You know, after Ryan Johnson did his thing, they tried to become a bit more controlling of what actually got put out um, in response to some, how some of the, the fans reacted. Um, which I, I don't think was a good idea because you kind of back yourself into a corner when you do stuff like that. And what we got was Solo, which was um, not Solo. It was 
a joint production. It was a joint vision, and it was just... It didn't have the success that I think a lot of people wanted it to. Um, but somehow, enough success that it might still warrant a sequel. And it was actually set up. I mean, if you've seen the film, uh, you'll know that there was um, a surprise appearance at the end from Darth Maul, who everyone believed to be dead. But if you know from the uh, Clone Wars series, I think it was, or Rebels, um, he's very much alive, um, sewed himself back together, got some robot legs, and became evil. Well, it didn't become evil, but became self-sufficient in his evil endeavours. So that that was the possible sequel that's been set up. And expecting him to dismiss rumours, um, Alden actually uh, suggested that he'd heard some story about it. Not really fully clear on how much is actually being talked about at Disney in regards to making a sequel. But he said he's not fully interested in going back unless... It is a, a good idea, a, a, a you know, a good plan, um, and it is worth exploring. Um, but now, of course, we have the added bonus of having Disney Plus, which, as I, as I mentioned last week, Disney now have the um, ability to take a few more risks, because when you're putting something out on a, uh, a streaming platform, you're not reliant on the kind of figures um, that box offices bring in. As I was saying before with the old guard, they can call that a success, but there's a lot of ambiguity behind that. Disney don't need to portray uh, an online release as a success. They just need it to be out there um, and know that the majority of what they are putting out is definitely a success, and that's drawing people in. But having the freedom to try new things and experiment with different filmmakers and different ideas... That's what the streaming platform brings them. So don't be surprised to hear that Solo has another run. There is the chance that it could be made, there could be a sequel made, and I, I would see that most likely turning up on the streaming platform. But with a Cassian Andor series and an Obi-Wan series in development, as well as the success of The Mandalorian, which, let's face it, if you've seen it, that was a home run for Disney. That couldn't have gone any better. Every part of that worked really, really well, and it was thoroughly enjoyable. I am so excited about the second series. But hey, this isn't a TV podcast. Now, we, we, do, we do want to see more Star Wars, but how are we going to see more Star Wars? Um, well, we were supposed to be getting a trilogy series from Ryan Johnson. Probably not going to happen now. Um, the guys behind Game of Thrones, they were um, supposed to be doing their own uh, trilogy, trilogy series. That's not happening either. Um, so what what are we doing? What's happening? What's going on next? Well, the only thing that we do have confirmed, the only thing that we do have confirmed at the moment is uh, a new film being developed by Takawatiti. Now, if you don't know, he's the director behind such greats as What We Do in the Shadows, Hunt for the Wilder People, and of course Thor Ragnarok, which pretty much saved that part of the MCU and brought new life to it. Now, um... Taka has actually been involved in the Star Wars universe already. He did direct an episode of The Mandalorian, and he also starred in The Mandalorian. He played IG-11, who was a, a bounty droid, um, and yeah, did a, did a really good job, and obviously proved that he can handle he can handle a massive franchise film like Thor, and he can also um, show enough respect to uh, adhere himself to, or endear himself, sorry, to the Star Wars audience as he did with The Mandalorian. So, yeah, um, he is currently uh, developing his own film with um, a 1917 screenwriter, Christy Wilson Cairns. Now, as you know, 1917 was a huge success and netted a bunch of Oscars. So what we're possibly getting there is a very well-written, very well-directed, fun, action-packed Star Wars movie that's going in a completely different direction from the Skywalker saga. I think everything's been established now that the, the Skywalker saga has come to an end. And whilst those characters might be referenced in future films, the world of Star Wars is going to go beyond that and look at other stories within the universe that it can tell. The most successful, of course, being um, Rogue One, 
which showed that you didn't need Jedis, you didn't need lightsabers, you didn't need Skywalkers, um, you didn't even need Yoda. Uh, you just needed a good story, um, a good director, and a good cast. That was a good film. And that was also an example of where Star um, Disney... Well, not Disney. Well, yeah, Disney. Um, Lucasfilm, basically, said, um, all right, what we're seeing isn't quite what we want. Things need to change. Let's do some reshoots. So whilst they did bring in uh, a new director to do the reshoots, it was under the instruction of the original director and to his vision. Uh, and the um, the change that the film the changes that happened to the film weren't the studio's request, but a suggestion from the director. This is a direction I was going to take it in, but feared it wouldn't be met or wouldn't get the reciprocation that it needed to be a success. The studio encouraged him to take a chance on that and go with that direction, and the film was completed. And let's face it, Rogue One is one of the best Star Wars films that's ever been made. It's probably up there in the, the top three, I'd say. Who knows? So there is the possibility for it, but um, one person who's definitely not coming back is uh, John Boyega. Um, he was recently... Uh, he, well, he basically recently shared a, um, a picture on Instagram of him on set for the first time since lockdown, um, fully masked up and somehow having his makeup done. Not really sure how that was working. Uh, maybe it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek joke. I wouldn't be surprised with him. He's a very funny guy. But someone commented that all they wanted to see was Finn wielding a green lightsaber in the next Star Wars film. Now, that's understandable. Everyone wants to make sure that, you know, sort of... They basically were implying that if he was dressed in black with a green lightsaber, a la Skywalker from uh, Return of the Jedi, that that would be, you know, a huge moment for fans but unfortunately Boyega did respond with quote lol no thank you I've moved on now I don't begrudge Boyega for not wanting to revisit the franchise considering how much of his career was focused on it and how badly typecast some of the original cast have become although I do see Boyega being more of a Harrison Thor than a Mark Hamill um, he's done great stuff outside of the franchise and I'm sure he's got a few irons in the fire especially after the whole protest thing where he stood up and and spoke at Hyde Park and, and supported the protests of Black Lives Matter. He did acknowledge the fact that it took some courage because in that kind of industry, especially as a person of colour, you don't really want to stand out too much because you're having to deal with a lot of limitations um, that the colour of your skin has unfortunately left you with. As I say, um, if you don't think white privilege is a thing, Try being, just try being a black person. <laughs> You'll understand. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that I, I know this from personal experience. Obviously, I'm as about as white as they come. I'm so pale, I'm borderline transparent. But so yeah, um, John Boyega took a bit of a risk. Uh, he stood up for what was right, and um, luckily, the reaction has been very, very positive. And everyone's basically fighting over getting him involved in their next project. I know one of the um, uh, most noticeable quotes was from Charlie Brooker, who made the Black Mirror films. He was quoted as saying that, I think, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting this, but he said he would crawl naked through broken glass just to have John so much as glance at one of his scripts. I don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if John Boyega would be interested in doing a Black Mirror episode slash project. I, for one, would love to see him involved in that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but I'm still hoping that the, one of the next things that he works on is Attack the Block 2. Let's face it, that's what we all want to see. Um, I don't think I'd really want to see him return to the Star Wars franchise unless there was some unique way in which his character could be brought back into it. And to be honest, I don't think most of us would really like to see that character shoehorned back into some kind of money-grabbing piece of trash. What we should do is we should move on to the movie reviews. And the first one is A Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, this is Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, depending on how you count them. And it stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, an actor in the 1950s TV show called Bounty Law, and Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, Rick's stuntman, driver, and confidant. 
Seeing his career slowly fade away from Hollywood's leading man to television's occasional bad guy, Dalton is under pressure from his agent to consider making spaghetti westerns in Italy. Not convinced that his time as a box office drawer is over, he commits himself to playing the bad guy in one more show, Lancer. Feeling the pressure of his agent and finding little encouragement he can believe in, except for in the innocent and unbiased opinion of a child actress he's seen with, Dalton is falling apart. The consequences of which could lead to his career taking a nosedive instead of riding off into the sunset as he had dreamed. Meanwhile, Clint is trying to take everything in his stride, including a run-in with the Manson family. Those that know his past give him a wide berth and display caution, whereas those who don't know what he's capable of soon find out. Someone who doesn't hesitate to act on impulse, but with a calm and unassuming demeanour, Clint finds himself in conflict with most who get close to him. The only people who can tolerate him are Dalton, his employer, and Brandy, his dog. As the two struggle for relevance in their chosen field, they experience moments of clarity and confusion that shape their view of what they should do with themselves. Some of these encounters prove hilarious, some prove instrumental in moving them forward in life, and some are so downright absurd and violent that it allows them to reevaluate their priorities and appreciate their friendship on a new level. As I say, this has a great, great cast. Um, DiCaprio, I'm not his biggest fan, but I can't deny the fact that when he's in a Tarantino film, he's he shines. He absolutely shines. Um, he's given a chance with Tarantino to really explore his character in depth and, and really play more of a character. Um, a lot of people typecast him as quite a straight, almost DiCaprio-esque uh, person, uh, which gives him little to really work with. Um, but in this, he is given a bit of license, and as is Brad Pitt, um, uh, who was fantastic in Inglorious Bastards, obviously. Um, but in this, he's he plays a, a, a wonderfully stoic character, who's just very chill and un, under, unperturbed by anything that happens around him, no matter how crazy or dangerous or violent or hate-filled it might be. And the two of them give absolutely fantastic performances. It's a wonderful uh, piece. It's a wonderful companionship that they have, the kind of like um, uh, chemistry that they have between them. Um, both being so, so uh, obscure in, in the characters they play. Um Margot Robbie is also in this. Uh, she plays the real-life uh, Sharon Tate, who um, in uh, history books was actually murdered by members of the Manson family. Um, uh, she was the partner of Roman Polanski. And in this film, uh, with Roman Polanski moving in next door to him, it's uh, almost a, a metaphor for just how close his dreams are. He can see them. They're right there, and if he could just get that one opportunity, that chance to get his foot in the door, it might happen for him. But it's going to take extraordinary circumstances, because at the moment he is not on the radar of people like Polanski. So there's a lot of pressure on him, and it's 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 a great tale, uh, you know, talking about just how... Um, I mean, it's, it's very true to the kind of careers that people were having at that time um people did end up like sort of going off to italy and and uh making westerns when they thought they could be making hollywood blockbusters but if anyone's heard of sergio leone you'll know that it actually turned out to be quite a good idea to head to europe and make these spaghetti westerns spaghetti westerns became a huge hit they were massive and let's face it the likes of um clint eastwood uh probably wouldn't have had the career they had if it wasn't for that that opportunity um but what i really loved about this film is just the zany brilliance of uh quentin tarantino now, that's not to say that you can dismiss him as um not a serious filmmaker for me he's one of the most important filmmakers of all time um and one of the strengths of his um filmmaking uh, abilities is the fact that he he can make a film and i think it's really important especially if you're a first-time filmmaker you look at something like Reservoir Dogs, if you can make a film that also works as a play, then you have a better chance of getting that produced for a, um, a reasonable budget. You know, if when, even George Lucas, his first film wasn't Star Wars, it was American Graffiti, um, just a film about people in dra racing drag cars, or whatever you call them, drag car racing, that kind of thing. It's, it's an American thing. Um, ironically and coincidentally, that also was one of the first acting gigs for Ron Howard. So there you go. It's uh, 
you know, swings and roundabouts. Um, but yeah, this is a wonderful film and it's Tarantino at his best. Um, you know, he's he's not one for historical accuracy. He's not one for um, trying to impress people or flatter the the Academy judges. He wants to make a his own kind of film and he's kind of really made a niche for himself in, in the industry that I, I don't think many others have really achieved. Um, you know a Tarantino film when you see it. Uh, there's something quite unique about his style, but... It's not just the um, the violence or the language or, you know, sort of the, the, the racial tensions and everything that seems to be um, uh, factors in a lot of his films. Uh, he knows how to get great performances out of decent actors um, and wonderful, like, groundbreaking performances out of great actors. Um, there aren't many people in Tarantino's films that really let you down. And it just makes you think sometimes when you look at an actor that's not quite getting the vehicle they, they deserve to, to really stand out as the actor you think they are. I, I always wonder to myself, like, kind of, ah, oh, it's a shame they can't get into a Tarantino film. I bet that would really work. Tarantino or Coen Brothers, they always seem to find the brilliance in an actor. Um, and uh, yeah, example in, in point, would you like to see Shia LaBeouf in a Tarantino film? Think about that one for a second. Shia LaBeouf is one of those guys that acts his ass off in really, really awful films. And I think that's a shame because I think he ends up uh, getting a reputation that he doesn't necessarily deserve. He's very dedicated, very passionate and very method in his approach. Um, and I think one of the places where that kind of talent would be best utilised would be in a Tarantino film. Um... But yeah, I, I thoroughly recommend Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It has um, some wonderful characters, some crazy dialogue, uh, amazing humour, uh, and just magnificent performances from an ensemble cast. Um, and yeah, there is some crazy, crazy violence. But it's it's enough to keep you absolutely, you know, glued to your seat. You'll you'll enjoy every minute of it. It's not there's no filler. His films always, I feel, work, would work as a play. Um, maybe not this one, because there's, there's a lot of different locations. But I think that's the um, impact that he made when he released Reservoir Dogs, was that he he basically wanted to show off his skills without overcomplicating the situation. And so it was stripped down. It was a uh, single location, pretty much, for the majority of the film. Um and yeah, his films, his his first film, and I think most good directors, when they make their first film, um, their first film should work as a play. If you can see it working on a stage, then that's something that you can achieve as an, a first-time filmmaker. I don't know if that's how other people see it, but personally, you know, I'm I've, I'm one of those people that's got an idea that I've never fully developed, and kind of one of these days I'm going to write my own film and, and make my own vehicle to really launch my career. Yeah, all of us have that. I'm not special when I say that I've got an idea. All of us do. Um, but one thing I've taken from Tarantino especially, and from other filmmakers, is that if you can create something which would work as a play, you might stand a chance of making that film. And Tarantino is a great example of that. Catch, Once Upon a Time in America, if you haven't already. Um and yeah, let me know what you think about it. Um, drop us a message on, on Facebook or Instagram or one of those uh, on the Podbean app. We've actually got a section there that you can leave comments. We're now on iHeartRadio as well, which is we're very proud of. Um, I say we, it's just me. Um, hoping to have a guest host come on soon. But with the whole COVID situation, it's just logistically not as achievable as we'd hoped. But watch this space now. On to my next film, and um, this is actually a new release on Amazon. It's an Amazon Studios special, which, you know, at first I was considering it to be an indie film, but um, it, it kind of is, in a way, uh, the way it was kind of produced, but uh, Amazon Studios got behind it, and, um, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, a large production because of them, I believe. Uh, but 7,500... It stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Tobias, an American pilot flying a passenger plane from Berlin to Paris, 
Shortly after takeoff, the cockpit is rushed by terrorists looking to hijack the aircraft. Tobias is able to close the door and remain in charge of the plane, but is now injured and his captain is out of action. He also has an unconscious terrorist to keep secure whilst taking charge of landing the plane safely. But his resolve is tested as the attackers beat on the door and threaten to execute passengers if he refuses their demands. If he opens the door, he cannot be sure he won't cause the death of everyone on the plane, but he cannot allow them to kill innocent people whilst he watches, especially when one of them is the love of his life and mother to his young boy. Despite being trained for such situations, the emotional turmoil he suffers could ultimately compromise his professional responsibility. What price is he willing to pay, and can he put the lives of the many first? Now, this film kind of reminds me of the one we were talking about last week, Greyhound. Um, there isn't really a lot of exposition. There's a little... Uh, it opens with some CCTV footage of our suspects um, boarding and going through security, getting on the plane. But then it's, it's, it's straight into it. And pretty much the entire film takes place in the cockpit of the plane. Which uh, is fantastic because what it does, it creates this claustrophobic, imprisoned sense that there is nothing this guy can do. He can't go get help. Um, he is literally stuck in this tiny little space um, with one of the most stressful situations that anyone could imagine. This is um, from first-time director and writer Patrick Volrath, um, and I think he does a fantastic job. It's uh, a very stripped-down film. Again, like with uh, Greyhound, it's very economic with its use of um, time and exposition. Um, we don't explore too much about different characters and their names and their, their backgrounds and their histories, their motivations, all that kind of jazz. And I think it really lends to the, the film because um, Tobias is in a situation where he doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't always understand the languages that are being used. Uh, he doesn't understand what he's been trained for this situation. He's having to improvise because things don't go um, as he'd expect. He's compromised physically and emotionally. And um, the, the stress of the situation, this, this film basically, it takes place in real time. Uh, it's it's about uh, a 90-minute film, and all of it, there is no, like, sort of, like, meanwhile, or a few minutes later, or, like, later on that day. It's just, it's all real time, and uh, it all happens, and it's, it's very, very intense. Now, whilst not every dramatic moment lands the way I believe the director intended, it does have... Um, a, a, a tension which gets under your skin and causes you to sweat in appreciation for what Tobias is going through. And I think a lot of that comes down to um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt because he gives a performance which is outstanding. He doesn't have a lot to work with. Um, and I believe this role was originally going to go to Paul Dano, but uh, unfortunately there was a conflict with some delays. He wasn't able to, to do it. Um, and it eventually went to Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And he does a fantastic job, absolutely fantastic job. It's flawless. Uh, I think he, he gives everything he can emotionally and, um, you know, he's completely convincing in the part. Um, and it's his uh, emotional distress and turmoil that you're kind of hooked into. He His performance is what gives you the empathy that has you hoping and praying that this character can achieve a desirable result, not just for him, but everyone involved. Um, and when he has to make some tough decisions, you you feel his pain. Um, so all credit to, to Joseph Gordon-Levitt. is an actor I've enjoyed for many, many years. I mean, if you think about it, we've been watching him on TV since he was, what, 10, 9? How old was he when he started doing um, Third Planet from the Sun? Uh, he's, he's a great actor. Um... And I'll be honest, if uh, DC are looking to make some spin-off films and uh, explore, you know, different ideas, and, you know, they've done uh, a Joker film without Batman, um, they've done, well, they've done a couple, actually, because he wasn't really, apart from a small cameo, he wasn't in Suicide Squad, he wasn't in Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, and he wasn't in, um, what do you call it, Emancipation of Harley Quinn, uh, you know, her film. Um, 
what was that called? Birds of Prey. Sorry, Jesus. Um, and knowing that you don't need Batman in a Batman film or a Batman-related film, we all saw that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was actually Robin in the end of the, the Dark Knight trilogy. If, if that's a spoiler, then I'm sorry, but you should have seen those films by now. They've been out for like fucking 10 years. All right, catch up. Um, but yes, uh, Robin, uh, th- there was talk originally, even though they weren't going to do any more films in the Dark Knight series uh, and leave that as a trilogy, which is definitely the right thing to do, they were looking at the possibility of doing a Nightwing film. Now, for those who don't know, um, Dick Grayson, the original Robin in the Batman uh, canon, he did actually walk away from the Robin role and move to New York to become his own hero. And he became Nightwing. Um, classic story in the comic books. has been going on for many, many years. Um, a couple of decades, I think, at least. Maybe several. Um and there was the possibility of looking at making uh, a Nightwing film film with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I would still want to see that, honestly. I think that's um, an idea that could work. Um, and it's a story that we haven't seen explored in, in anything other than some comics uh, and some cartoons. As we've seen now with the, some of the spin-offs and some of the uh, alternative, alternative universe films, um, it's definitely doable. Anyway... That's a tangent. I need to go back to uh, 7500. You need to check this film out. It's not the best film in the world, but there's enough going on. Um, there's enough that's impressive about it that you will come away feeling like it's been worth watching. Um, I, I do recommend it. Um, some people might not like the fact that it is stuck in this one location um, and you don't get to explore the motivations of a lot of characters. A lot of people need that. They need to know what everyone's doing and why they're doing it. But I like these films where they kind of leave it to the imagination of the viewer, like sort of um, especially, as I say, in the case of um, Tobias, who is ignorant to what's really going on um, to really kind of you know, make his stress and confusion palpable. You need to be in the same kind of shoes as he is. Um, there are subtitles when people are speaking German. Uh, but yeah, sometimes um, it's what you don't know that really kind of instills that fear in you that the uh, the characters, the protagonist in the film would be um, experiencing themselves. Maybe you won't get the same experience from it, but that's how I enjoyed the film. And I, I thoroughly think it's worth a watch. Um, so check it out. It's on Amazon now. Um, you'd have to pay to rent it. If you've got an Amazon Prime um, subscription, it's there and ready to go. And it's worth a watch. It's only 90 minutes long and it's um, it's something different. It's a good, tense thriller uh, that you'll be happy with. You, you won't be disappointed when you watch it, trust me. Now, our final film. Yes, we are going indie. We are going obscure. Uh, and we're going for 2011's Take Shelter. Now, in Take Shelter, Michael Shannon, as you may recognise from Man of Steel and Boardwalk Empire, plays Curtis, a husband and father plagued by visions of a supernatural storm that causes an apocalyptic frenzy which puts both him and his family in severe danger. Fearing the worst but not wanting to cause panic or unnecessary distress to his friends, family and co-workers, co-workers even, Curtis looks to expand the capacity of his storm shelter to protect his loved ones, including his wife, played by Jessica Chastain, and his deaf daughter, should the worst happen and the nightmare comes true. But it's not long before they, those close to him become suspicious of his strange behaviour. And soon after his actions jeopardise not only his, but his friend's job security, scrutiny starts to break Curtis, and he is torn between continuing his efforts to be ready for what might come and ensuring he still has everything he holds dear if it doesn't. As the people around him suspect a mental breakdown, Curtis too is finding it hard to rule that out. But as the visions become more horrific and violent, his resolve could be the one thing that saves them all. Now, as I say, this film came out in 2011, uh, and it was recommended to me by a, a friend that I worked with. Um, uh, shout out to Doug. Um, again, it wasn't a very well-advertised film. I haven't really heard much about it since, to be honest. But for me, it's a, it's a standout little um, hidden gem. Um it's one of those films that just seems to have slipped under the radar. Um, not a lot of people have talked about it, and it still doesn't seem to be picking up much traction. I think it's fantastic. 
it's a very unique um, thriller in the fact that it's one of those clever ones that puts you in the mind of the protagonist, but allows you to see him through other people's eyes as well. Because his, if we if we only saw this from his perspective, we'd be sure that what he's doing was for the greater good, that he was right, and that he had some kind of prophetic vision of what would be, and therefore justifying all of his actions. But what we actually see is his life and uh, the way it impacts the people around him. And that sows enough doubt in our minds to think that maybe this isn't a real thing. Maybe he is, you know, suffering some kind of schizophrenic breakdown. And that ambiguity throughout the film keeps you on edge because you become a bit more like Curtis in the film. You want him to to realise he's mad and get things back on track so he doesn't ruin everything. But also, you don't want him to ignore the fact that this could be a possible disaster. And you want to make sure that, you know, he's been given these visions for a, a reason and that he might be able to save people. Or he could just be a crazy guy that ends up living underground. That, you know, the the film doesn't try to lean in one way or the other. And that ability to stay on the fence all the way through makes it engrossing, really. Um, Michael Shannon, uh, for me, he's he's a um, one of the most underrated actors uh, around. And he's brilliant in almost everything that he does. Um, even in Man of Steel, where he played General Zod. You know, some of some of his scenes were a bit unnecessarily dramatic, but he managed to give it this gravitas and um, a degree of psychotic. I don't know. I don't. I don't really know what words to use. Um, he had this kind of psychotic edge to him in that film that made him a brilliant uh, antithesis for for the, uh, the the protagonist. You know. Um, Superman being all that's good and great, um, General Zod being the opposite of all of that. Um, I thought he did a great job, it just wasn't a very well-written character. Um, but yeah, Michael Shannon, very, very good actor, and he does a great job in this film. Um, he's able to show sometimes, just through a flicker of a frown, the anguish and the stress that this whole situation is putting on him. Um, he's completely besotted with his young daughter uh, and dedicated to trying to make life better for her. And that's one of the conflicts that comes up in the film that he's got to, you know, she's got to get this new cochlear implant fitted. Um, but as his actions, uh, you know, jeopardise his work situation, it also jeopardises his uh, medical insurance situation, which je in turn jeopardises her the possibility of her being able to hear one day um and it's just it's another one of those things that that adds to the the stress of the situation and it's it's really well done it's a it's a fantastic film and it's got a great cast as i say his wife's played by jessica chastain who doesn't have a large role in the film but she does enough to really portray someone who's frightened by what's happening concerned about the the um consequences um, but supportive enough to not dismiss the concerns of the person that she loves. Um, and Shay Wiggum plays his uh, work colleague. Uh, Shay Wiggum's one of those actors that never seems to be the leading man, but always seems to outshine everyone on screen when he's there. Maybe that's why they don't make him the leading man, because, yeah, maybe he would just shine too bright. That That's, that's a, a ridiculous thing to suggest. I would love to see him uh, get a lead role in a film at some point. Um, uh, but when he does pop up in a film or a TV series, I, yeah, he's one of those, he, he's a box ticker. Like, yeah, if he's part of the cast, I'm, pr I'm probably going to give it a try. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the film itself is one of those kind of, um, it's a word I overuse in this podcast and I do apologise, but it's a cerebral film where it really does, um, it, the, 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 idea that it's kind of the, the the storm that's coming is one that doesn't really make sense and the chaos that that adds to the story 
really lends to the the madness being experienced by the protagonist. So there, there are many elements of this film that are smart. Um, and whilst it does suffer with some pacing issues at times, I, I, I think ultimately it does pay off with um, a fantastic story that does stay with you for a few days. Um, it's one of those things that it has kind of an impact on you. It has you thinking about it. Um, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily uh, ambiguous in its conclusion, um, but where it takes you, uh, what you're expecting, there are so many different ways that it could go that you really don't know what's happening or you don't know how it's going to end until it does end. Um, and I came away from this very pleased, very very happy with it. And I recommended it to a lot of friends. Um, I did recommend it to someone who should watch it this week and they um, they enjoyed it, but I think they found it a bit depressing. Um, so, yeah, I don't really know what you'd make of this film, uh, but it is on Amazon. Uh, it is there ready to watch on Prime if you have a Prime account. Um, if not, keep an eye out for it anyway, because as I say, it's one of those, it's one of those hidden gems, one of those little, um, small indie films that, uh, wasn't a huge success, um, but maybe deserved more. Uh, that is a subjective opinion. I understand that, but give it a try. And if I'm wrong, tell me. Now, that's pretty much it for this week. Um, it's been a difficult one this week because I've had to deal with a lot of uh, circumstances that I didn't expect, mainly uh, a lot of drilling and hammering. Um, and it's this is the longest it's ever taken me to get a podcast out. But I'm really enjoying this process and I'm really enjoying the fact that a lot more people are tuning in each week and discovering us. Um, I would love to see more people uh, tuning in. I'd love to see more people sharing links to the, the podcast and telling their friends about it. Um, this week, I, I'd like to see us... Um, well, you know what? The, uh, there's been an increasing number of people listening to the podcast, and they do come back and, and then listen to past episodes, which means that each week I'm seeing more and more downloads, and that's absolutely fantastic. Um but I want to know a bit more about where you guys are listening from, because I can see it on a map. Um, in the US, I can see we've got a great following in New York. Um, we're building one in California. We've got great listeners in Virginia and Michigan. Uh, we've also got listeners in New Jersey. Um, and around the world, we've got Sri Lanka. We've got Sweden. We've got Slovakia. And we've got some countries that don't begin with this, um, like India and Thailand. Um, and I really appreciate the fact that all you people are listening. Um, and I can see the majority, obviously, as you can probably imagine with this, with me being a British guy, uh, Irish really, but British. Um, of course, most of my listeners are in Britain. Um, and that's not, uh, I don't really get much more specific geographic information about that. So let me know whereabouts in Britain you're listening to, listening to the podcast. Um, and whether you know anyone else nearby that's also listening to the podcast. Because I, I want to know certain areas that, you know, we're popular in. And I want to know more about you as well. Um, you're hearing about me every week. Um, I'd like to know a bit more about my audience. What do you want to hear from this podcast? What do you expect from this podcast? What do you enjoy about it? What do you dislike about it? I know I'm not the most professional host in the world. And maybe I, you know, pause too much. Maybe. I don't know. Work for Shatner. But I'd love to get a bit more feedback from you. And um, I just want to give you guys the best possible product that I can create. Um, as I say, I am working now. And this is kind of like a thing I was going to do in lockdown just to kind of keep myself from going mad. But unfortunately, I really, really enjoy this. And uh, I really enjoy talking to you guys and, and uh, having you... Uh, keeping you informed every week of what's going on in the world of movies and giving you recommendations. Um, so, yeah, it will continue. Um, I'm not really sure what we're going to do next week. There's been a few films that have come out that um, I've been tempted to watch. Uh, and one film that I did watch for the first time recently that I haven't reviewed yet, Hereditary. And I was just thinking, maybe, maybe... We should do a horror special. I'm not going to wait till October. 
Next week, I think we're going to do a horror special. So if you've got a horror film that you think I should watch, and one that you think is worth talking about, give me a shout. Hereditary Trees looks like it might be one of the films that I want to review, because I want to talk about it, basically. Uh, I missed that this cinema. It's kind of passed me by. Um, as far as indie films go, let's face it, that's where the horror industry shines. So give me a shout. Let me know what your recommendations are. Um, but remember this. Uh, I appreciate you. I love you. Um, wish you peace, love, and empathy. And until next week, look after yourselves and each other. I'm sorry that's a bit Jerry, Jerry Springfield. Jerry Springer. All right, take care, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.